The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, and reading verse 24. The 24th verse in the 5th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Now, those who attend here regularly will know that we've been looking at this great fifth chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah on seven previous Sunday evenings. And there we have looked at his detailed exposition of the case and the condition of the children of Israel. The prophet had been raised up and called by God and given a message to address to his contemporaries. And it's a message of judgment. But God never judges, God never punishes without giving us his reasons. God is not capricious. God has told men how to live, he's laid down the conditions, and he's told men very plainly what will happen if he doesn't fulfill the conditions. But man in his folly ignores this, lives a sinful life, and so God pronounces judgment upon him. But let me again make it plain and clear that the object of this is to call men and women to repentance. God never punishes without giving a warning. He calls us to repentance. He holds before us the offer of the gospel. And it is only after we have refused it and rejected it, that the punishment of God descends upon us. Very well, that's what's happening in this particular chapter. And as I've been showing you, the prophet, uh, in the first seven verses, gives a general summary of the whole case. Then he illustrates it in six different respects. And we've been working through these six different worlds that are pronounced upon the children of Israel. Now, having done that, the prophet in this verse that we're looking at tonight really sums up the entire message again. Why is the wrath of God upon these people? Why is it that God is going to punish them? As he says in the next verse, Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people, and he hath stretched forth his hand against them, and hath smitten them. Why? Well, the answer is given us in this particular verse. Here, after all, is the real cause of the trouble. Here is the explanation as to why the children of Israel have been behaving in this foolish, perverted manner which we have seen as we've worked our way through the six worlds. This is why the wrath of God is upon them. Now, I'm calling attention to all this because this is still the real essential cause of all men's ills and troubles. Details are important, and we've been looking at the details. 
and we've seen how contemporary they are, of all the particular things with which the prophet Isaiah charged his contemporaries are still the things that are most obvious in the life of Great Britain today, and indeed in the life of every other country. The details are important, and we've got to realize them. But to stop at the details is the greatest blunder which a man can ever commit. The whole object of the details is to direct our attention to the principle, to the thing itself. And that is why I say there is nothing more fatal than to stop with the details. But that is exactly, of course, what's being done in this country and other countries at the present time. They're interested in detail. They observe juvenile delinquency. They observe the increase in venereal diseases. They observe certain other particular problems. They set up special commissions to inquire into each one and to try to discover some cure. They're dealing with the problem piecemeal. And it doesn't work. It never has worked. Why? Well, because they're only medicating symptoms. They're not treating the disease. There is nothing more fatal, therefore, than to stop at the details and to fail to come to the essential root cause of the trouble. So that the question we ask once more is this. Why is man capable of such unutterable folly? Why is man capable of living so foolishly as an individual? Why is mankind so capable of unutterable folly taken as a whole? Why is the world as it is tonight? That's the question. We've got to keep on coming back to that. We are not meeting together here just to pass away an hour or so, or to interest or to entertain one another. We are here because we are all in the midst of life. We are surrounded by problems. We see the whole world in turmoil. And the great question is, what's the matter? Why is the world as it is? Why are men and women capable of some of these things we've been looking at together? Why is there materialism? Why do people live for houses and for money? Why is it that they rise up early, some of them in the morning, that they may follow strong drink and just live for pleasure? Why is it that men and women draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope? Why are they mad on sin? Why this modern perversion, calling evil good and good evil, putting darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Why is it that modern man with his world on fire is still so proud of himself, wise in his own eyes and prudent in his own sight? Why is it that men, instead of competing for greatness and for the good of themselves and their country and the glory of God, are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink? I was reminding you of this last Sunday night and told you that men actually compete as to who can drink the most and this very week that's followed we've had this tragic illustration of all this coming out in the evidence given at a coroner's inquest in Cambridge how these poor young men having had their dinner then went down into the crypt and entered into a competition as to which of them could drink the most. You see, it is all very contemporary. There's not a bigger mistake in the world tonight than to think that this Bible's an old, old-fashioned book that doesn't say anything to the modern men. My dear friend, here you get wisdom for today. Here you get a description of life today and the only cure for such a condition. What is the explanation, I ask, of why man lives in this amazing and extraordinary manner? There's only one answer. Here it is. 
It is because they have cast away the law of the Lord of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. You may like an alternative translation. They have rejected the law of the Lord and shown contempt, shown contempt, despised the words of the Holy One of Israel. In other words, here I say is the essence of the trouble. The trouble with men is not merely and not only that he does certain particular things that are wrong. The trouble with all of us by nature is not simply that we break certain particular laws of God. The real trouble is this. When man rejects the law of God altogether and dismisses it and despises it and treats it with unutterable contempt. Now that is the position at the present time. The problem as it was with Israel at this juncture is not simply that men were guilty of this particular sin or that particular sin. It was that they didn't recognize sin at all. It wasn't that they were breaking particular laws of God. They didn't recognize the law of God. They didn't recognize God. God and his laws were dismissed and treated with utter contempt. That's the trouble. And that is the thing, according to the prophet, that was bringing down the wrath of God upon Israel at that particular time. And it did come down, of course. The children of Israel were attacked by the great Chaldean army. Their army was destroyed. Their city was destroyed. And this proud children of Israel were carried away as captives and slaves to the land of Babylon. That's why it happened. Now I say that we are living at a time when the same thing is true again, alas. The problem is not particular sins. The problem is godlessness. A despising of the law of God altogether. Not recognizing any such category. Well, as I'm trying to show you, there's nothing new about all this. It's very old indeed. It's as old as human civilization. It's as old as the human story. There's only one new element about the present manifestation of this. And it is this, that the modern man is trying to justify all this. He's trying to justify his attitude. He's trying to justify it in intellectual terms. He's writing books about it. Some of them called religious, others called philosophy. He's speaking about it on the television and on the wireless. These are the things that are being said. The modern man not only breaks the particular laws of God, he rejects God and the law altogether, and he justifies himself in doing so. At least he's trying to do so. And he's trying to show us that in this way he's being a man. That he's asserting his liberty. That he's shaken off the chains of religion. Got rid of the dope of the people. And that he now has found something greater, something superior. Something which really makes a man a man. Something which makes him grown up and adult. Now that is the one new feature about this present rejection of God and of his laws. That it is presenting itself to us as a great advance. As something noble and wonderful. It's offering us emancipation and liberty. And that is what makes it so serious. There's always hope for the sinner who knows he's a sinner. 
And I thank God I can say this from this Christian pulpit tonight. I may be speaking to someone who has sunk very deep into sin. My dear good friend, don't let that deter you. If you know that you're a sinner, the door of heaven is open to you. However deeply a man may have sinned, as long as he knows it, as long as he feels it, and as long as he regrets it, there is everlasting hope for him. I've got a glorious message to offer him. But if a man doesn't even recognize sin, if a man is proud of the life he is living, if he tries to justify it intellectually, well then I say that while he remains in that condition, there is no hope whatsoever for him. That is final hopelessness. The only man who's hopeless is the man who doesn't know he's a sinner, doesn't recognize such a thing as sin at all, and doesn't recognize God. He's completely hopeless until he is bent and acknowledges his transgression. That is the position by which we are confronted today. And it is upon that that God pronounces his woe, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised, treated with contempt, the words of the Holy One of Israel. Well, now then, this is a most serious matter, obviously. This is the kind of thing which brings down the wrath of God upon individuals and upon communities and countries. We must examine it, though. Now, as we proceed to do so, let me make one thing quite clear, lest there be any misunderstanding at all about this. What I'm talking about is the kind of person who rejects the law of God and the words of the Holy One of Israel. I am not speaking about people who are reacting merely against the codes of society. That's not what I'm dealing with. I'm not talking about people who are simply reacting against and objecting to a superficial morality. I am not dealing with people who object to mere respectability. Now, I want to make this very plain. I believe there is a reaction in the present generation against what we may well call Victorianism. And I'm the last man in the world to defend Victorianism. Indeed, I would lay claim to being one of its greatest critics. I have no use for Victorianism. That age, you know, in which it was the thing to do to go to a place of worship. Because you'd probably get a better job if you did. It was the respect respectable thing to do. I'm not here to defend that. I've no interest in religion. I've no interest in morality as such. I'm not here because I'm trying to help the government or because I'm interested even in the political welfare of this country. That's not my object at all. So if you're merely objecting against... A society code, uh, superficial, easy morality, or a self-righteous respectability. My dear friend, I'm with you. I'm on your side. I'm against it as much as you are. Neither am I here to defend uh, what is in that way nothing but a sham and a, and a, a, a pretense and mere hypocrisy. Now, I know the modern man has reacted violently against all this. I was brought up in that age. There was more of it uh, 40 to 50 years ago than there is today. I remember the beginning of this reaction against 
late Victorian and Edwardian respectable religion. And I was one of the people who objected, and I still object. I'm 40 years older, but I still say what I said then. I'm not saying anything new. Religion is the greatest enemy of Christianity, quite often. Respectability is the antithesis of truly Christian living. Now then, I'm not here to defend anything like that. You can say as much as you like against sham and pretense and hypocrisy. I'll say amen to you. I'll applaud you. I'll say quite right. But the trouble is, you see, that the modern men in, re in reacting against all that has gone so far as to reject the law of God and the words of the Most High. Now, I want to be fair. I have a great sympathy with the modern men. Let me give you a simple illustration of what I mean. Look at the poor people in Russia who now believe in atheistic communism. Why are they in that position? I don't think there's any difficulty about answering that question at all. Their only conception of Christianity was what they saw in the Russian Orthodox Church and especially in the life of a man like that fiend Rasputin who had such terrific power over the last Tsar of Russia and especially over his wife. That was their conception of Christianity. And they said, we don't want it. It's a horrible thing. So they've gone right away from it and they've become atheists. Now that's the tragedy. They were right in objecting to that. But you see, they didn't realize that that was a false representation of Christianity. And in their blindness, they have rejected the whole of Christianity and an entire belief in God. Very well then, I say, let's be quite clear as to what we are considering. We are considering men and women who reject the law of God and God himself and every word that comes from the Most High. And that, I say, is the position with the vast majority of people in this country tonight. They hate religion. They hate, I mean by that, they hate God and his laws and true Christianity. They're violent. They're bitterly opposed to it. It's almost incredible, but it's a fact. And they're justifying what they call a new morality. Which is their conception of morality without God at all. Now then, how have they ever got into such a condition? Well, I want to analyze it with you in terms of what we are told here. The first explanation of being in this position is that they've got a complete misunderstanding of the law. They have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts. Why? Because they've got a complete misconception with regard to law. That's their first trouble. What do I mean? Well, here's one thing. They have a feeling that the law is against them. That the law is not for our good and for our well-being, but it is something against us. That's the fundamental misconception. They want to get rid of this law of the law. Because they feel that this has been the enemy of men. And so they're rebelling against it. Now they do this in three main respects, which I just want to mention very briefly to you. They hate the law of God because they feel that it is the opposite to happiness. You see, they want happiness. And they say nothing has so stood between men and women and happiness as this law. It makes people feel they're miserable Christians, miserable sinners. It says no to everything they want to do. It causes a man to crucify his own natural powers, which are innate in him. It makes him, makes him live an unnatural life. It makes him regard as wrong that which is essentially right. 
And so it leads to perpetual misery. So they object to the law of the Lord and they cast it on one side. They think that the law is something purely negative, purely restrictive. If I may use the well-known words of Milton, they regard it as something that leads a man to scorn delights and live laborious days. But here, you see, the whole question that arises is this. What is happiness? What is happiness? We all believe in happiness. There's nothing wrong in that. We are meant to be happy. God made men and intended him to be happy. But the question that arises today is, what is happiness? And here is the tragedy of the modern position. Happiness is regarded as experience only. Now, you'll find this in the literature, in the drama, in all the things we've been mentioning in detail. This is the test of happiness, experience, and especially the experience of the moment. The present moment, nothing else matters but that. You shut out everything else, you don't consider anything, but the present moment, the present experience. And that is what accounts for all the trouble and so much of the calamity. The definition of happiness is much too small, it's much too narrow. You must define happiness in terms of the total man. Happiness is defined today in terms of certain particular experiences only. And the argument is we can't be really happy unless we are given liberty here and there and there. That's happiness. This moment that I desire to enjoy myself, nothing else is considered. The whole man isn't considered. The mind, the brain, the conscience, tomorrow isn't considered. The consequences are not considered. It's the experience, the happiness of the moment. And the result is, of course, quite inevitable. If you start out with a false notion and conception of happiness, you're never going to find it. And modern man who's living for pleasure and for happiness is not finding it. That's simply a sheer fact. They're throwing away the law of the Lord. They say, we can't be happy. This thing, this incubus, let's get rid of that. Then we'll be happy. But they're not happy. Why not? They're not happy because they've got a conscience inside them. They don't believe it, but it's there. And they can't get rid of it. You can't get rid of remorse. You can't get rid of a sense of shame. It's there. The experience of the moment. This is living. This is happiness, is it? What about the next day? And so, you see, man doesn't find it. There are certain laws of life. The Bible has told us from the beginning that the way of the transgressor is hard. You break the laws of God and you have to suffer. There is a law of life and of being and of happiness. You see, the facts are proving that the modern rebellion against God's law and the quest for happiness is not bringing happiness how do I know that? Well, I do suggest to you very seriously that the divorce figures are proving it to the very hilt. I was reading only this last week that one out of every two marriages in Los Angeles in the United States ends in divorce. One out of every two. That's the place where they believe in liberty, isn't it? That's where they live for happiness. Los Angeles, Hollywood, that's life. Here's happiness. One out of two marriages dissolve. They're not finding happiness. And the endless succession of divorces proves that they're not finding it. They have kicked the law of God out through the door. But have they found happiness? They don't seem to, do they? And it doesn't end, unfortunately, with divorce. Drug taking, drink, 
craving for some fresh experience all along. If they're so happy, why do they have to do these things? They're not happy. You see, their whole notion of happiness is wrong. It's too small. They don't start with man and consider what he is and realize that before he can be happy, every part of him must be satisfied. It's just experience. It's just enjoyment. It isn't happiness. It isn't happiness. Oh, but you see, the tragedy is that men and women can still be so foolish as to believe that they can find happiness along those particular lines. It's been tried so often before. Let me give you one example, which is perhaps one of the most dramatic and striking, that great Christian doctor, Saint Augustine. He tried it all. Right in the first centuries, around about 400 A.D., here was this man with all his genius, his brilliant philosophy. He wasn't a Christian, but he was trying to find happiness. And he tried to find happiness in the way in which people are finding happiness now. He couldn't find it. He tried it very thoroughly. There's nothing new about keeping a mistress. He did it. They'd been doing it even before the birth of Christ. It's as old as human nature. He's tried it all and he couldn't find it. His great brain wasn't satisfied. He felt a lack. And he goes on trying to find it. He couldn't find it. It comes to that dramatic moment when he makes his great confession. Thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. You see, they regard law as the opposite of happiness. That's the fundamental blunder, as I'm going to show you. Secondly, they regard law as being the opposite of liberty. This, of course, is the great claim. That religion holds you in, tells you not to do this, holds you back, doesn't let you express yourself. This is it, isn't it? We want liberty, they say. We want freedom. Oh, the thing is so well known to all of us, I needn't keep you with description. Every one of us has been through it, looking forward to the day when you were an adolescent, when you'd no longer be forced to go to Sunday school, when you could become a man and decide for yourself what to do and be free and get away from church and chapel and God and religion and really live your own life in freedom. Oh, how old it is. We all know all about it. You see, they put law and liberty over against one another. And here's another tragic error. Because the question that arises here is now, what is liberty? As we've had to ask what is happiness, we now are compelled to ask what is liberty. And you see, modern men's idea of liberty is license. Do what you like. Every man for himself. Have a good time. Let nothing restrain you. Don't worry about other people. Do what you want to do. If you want to, well, it's yours. It's right. Have it. Don't think of anybody else. That's the modern man's notion of liberty. That's license, my friends. That's not liberty. And again, you see, this is the tragedy of it all, that it doesn't lead to liberty. You can kick over the traces, you can push the law of God out through the door, you can spit upon the sanctities and despise the words of the Holy One of Israel. But don't imagine for a moment that you're going to get liberty because you won't. And I'll tell you why. Our Lord has put it in a great statement, which you'll find in the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. He was speaking one day and some people seemed to believe in him. And our Lord looked at them and said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But they didn't like that. They turned on him and they said, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? 
You remember our Lord's answer? Let me give it to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant or the slave of sin. You can get rid of law, but you don't get liberty. What do you become? You become the slave of sin. Liberty. Think of men who've defied the name of God and blasphemed it and thrown all the laws right out. Have they got liberty? Poor slaves to sex and to drink and to various other things that grip them and manipulate them. Slaves to their profession. Slaves to jealousy and envy and pride. Look at the life of society. They're too intelligent to believe in God, but look at the miserable slavery of this polite life in society. It's the worst slavery that I know of. Jealous of one another's dress and appearance and car and house and yacht and this and that. It's sheer slavery. No, no. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. You don't find liberty. You don't find happiness by throwing law out through the window. Let me quote you some very excellent words by Field Marshal Lord Slim, which I was reading recently. I think this is a very profound summing up of the whole of this discussion. You can have discipline, he says, without liberty. But you cannot have liberty without discipline. You can have discipline without liberty, but you cannot have liberty without discipline. Why not? Well, you see, for this reason. You're not really free until you're in the right relationship with everybody else. You get what you want, but the other man will also. And you'll feel that he's holding you down. You won't be free. There's no such thing as liberty without discipline. And the tragedy of today is that men and women are convinced that there is. They think the way to be free is to break and to throw out the law of God. They know nothing about what James calls the perfect law of liberty. Or a phrase in the prayer book. Whose service is perfect freedom. They're ignorant of that. Their whole notion of liberty has gone astray. But thirdly, they regard law as being the opposite of love. And this is the favorite, of course, of all. They believe in love. You remember that Professor Carstairs giving the Lee Reith lectures. All trouble, he says, is due to this. The church has put chastity before love. But love is the thing. So he goes on to advocate experimental marriage and so on. Love is the thing. Love is the opposite of law. The church has been preaching law and everybody's been miserable. What we need is love. And so they contrast the teaching of the Apostle Paul, of whom they're so woefully ignorant, and the great wreath lecturer showed profound and colossal ignorance of the whole teaching of the Apostle Paul. Paul the misogynist, the man who's against women. Oh, what utter rubbish it is. Why don't they read the Apostle Paul? And to contrast him with the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is blasphemy. No man was ever honored more by the Lord Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul. There is no contradiction whatsoever. It is precisely the same teaching. But you see, in these terms, they put love against law, law against love. What's the question here? Well, the question here we must ask is, what is love? And I suppose of all questions the modern men ought to consider, this is the first. What is love? We are living in a sex-ridden generation and in a cinema-ridden generation. And the whole notion of love comes from there, from Hollywood, with your one-in-two divorce, remember. 
That's where the notion of love comes from. What's love? Well, love is nothing but lust. Living like an animal, letting yourself go, that's love. What else? Well, some vague well-wishing and so on. And of course, the law of God is against that. And rightly so. The law of God is against lust. It's against this vague, general, meaningless talk. The law of God is strong. It's powerful. It's an expression of the love of God. But you see, it's not opposed to love. The law is not opposed to love. Did you notice how the Apostle Paul put it there in Romans 13? He says, love does no harm to its neighbor. The essence, he says, of the law of God is this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love fulfills the law. Love carries out the law. And law is strong. It's noble. It's pure. It's clean. It's upright. Love is the most wonderful thing in the world. Far from being the antithesis of law, love is the fulfilling of the law. Our Lord Jesus Christ was the very incarnation of God's love. He was perfect love. And listen to what he says. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. You see, it's tragic. Man today rejects the law of God because he doesn't understand the law. He has got a complete misconception with regard to the meaning of law. But let me hurry on. The second cause of this rebellion and rejection of the law against and rejection of the law of God is this. It's a complete misunderstanding of the true nature of man. Because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the Holy One of Israel. Why do they do it? Well, they say they don't understand the law, but still more tragic, they don't understand themselves. And this is to me one of the great tragedies of today that man in trying to exalt himself is debasing himself. And he shows that his real trouble is he doesn't understand himself and his own true nature. You see, he thinks that law is against him and against his true nature. Man thinks that law is an insult to him. He says, why must I have law? Why must I be kept down? Why can't I be allowed to express myself? So the cult is that of self-expression. But here the question we must ask is, what then is man? What is the modern man's view of man, of himself? He says, I don't like law because it's an insult to me. Well, then we're entitled to ask him, well, who are you? What are you? And he hasn't got an answer. This is one of the most tragic things of all. Now, this is the modern popular view of man. What is man? Well, here's one of the definitions of men today. Man, we are told, is a bundle of sensations. A bundle of sensation. There is no me. There is no such thing as I or me. What am I? Well, I'm told that I'm nothing but a bundle of sensations. I, there are all sorts of impulses and instincts and desires within me. Sensations. And I react to others and to the world and I get sensations. And I'm nothing but a collection or a bundle of sensations. There's no such thing as me. I am what I am momentarily. I am at this moment the man that's speaking and is conscious of certain sensations. You are people who are listening at this moment and are aware of certain sensations. Some of pleasure, some of pain, some of agreement, some of disagreement, and so on. But you're nothing but this momentary sensation. Now, this is a very serious matter. 
The modern men cease to believe in God and in God's law. What's the favorite, the most popular philosophy today? It is what is called the existentialist view of men. The existentialist philosophy. It's extremely popular. You've got it in your books, novels, dramas, and all the rest of it. What's it tell us about men? Now, let me give you some quotations. What is men, according to this teaching? He is a mere nucleus of conscious experience in the space-time stream. That's what man is. He is a mere nucleus of conscious experience in the space-time stream. Life is a space-time stream. It's moving on. And what is man? Well, he's just a sort of little nucleus of experience in this moving space-time stream. Here's another definition. Sum cogitans, which means this. I am a thought center. That is all that we can know about ourselves. What do I know about myself? Well, all I know about myself, I'm told, is this. That I'm a thought center. I am capable of thinking. And I think certain thoughts. That's really all I can know about myself. I can know no more. I simply know that I do think. I do think I am a thinking person. I am a thought center. Then listen to another. We are finite in an infinite process. And we become real by accepting this fact instead of deluding ourselves by the false stability of conceptual thinking. Let me put it like this. This is the way to understand that. What is man? Man is a finite being in some infinite process that's carrying him on. The process is infinite, we're aware of that. There was life before I came, there is life, there will be life. Here's an infinite process. I know no beginning, no end to it. It is an infinite process. What's man? Oh, man is finite. I'm not always going to be here. I wasn't always here. I shall not always be here. I'm finite in this infinite process. And the way to become real is not to believe in God and in salvation, but by accepting this fact that you're finite in an infinite process, and by accepting this fact instead of deluding yourself by accepting certain propositions of religion. Or oh, let me give you another. And I'm doing this very deliberately. It is because they believe this kind of thing about themselves that they reject the law of God and spit upon the word of the Holy One of Israel. Take this great French writer. I say great, he is a great writer. But he's an unbeliever. He's an infidel called Sartre. This is his teaching. He says he has accepted complete atheism and complete free will. And he's prepared to draw the consequences from those two positions. Man, he says, must make his vital choices without any sure premises from which to reason. Now, that's what he says. I'm not saying that. Sartre says that man has got to make his vital choices without any sure premises from which to reason. I don't know anything. I can't be certain of anything. But I've got to make my choices. I've got to live, and living means making choices. Well, I say, on what grounds can I decide? He says, I can't give you any grounds at all. Man has got to make his vital choices without any sure premises from which to reason. Listen, he says, we are thrown into the world we know not how. And left, and left free to make ourselves by our choices. 
Man is something that's been thrown into this world, we don't know how, and he's left absolutely free to make himself by his own choices. But he's got no rules, he's got no principles, he's got no truth by which to do so. He says our situation is absurd because our project, project of ourselves, our essence, is always in front of what we are at the present. He says, I'm never what I want to be. I'm never what I know I ought to be. But I'm always moving, but I never get there. And that's why our whole position is absurd. And what has it all ended? Well, according to him, it ends in despair and in nausea. A perpetual feeling of sickness. And the modern age is sick of life. It's a sick age. Hence all the literature and the drama and the architecture and all else I've spoken about. It's a sick age. It's a nausea. Man is sick and tired. He doesn't know where he is. The thing's too big for him. And yet he claims he understands. And yet he admits he hasn't got any grounds on which to reason at all. And yet he has to make his vital choices. That's his view of himself. And it's because he's got that view of himself he rejects the law of God. But furthermore, he believes that he's still capable of deciding. He still thinks he can decide what is best for him. But how can he? Every opinion differs. And the moment you get these differing opinions, there are clashes, and you can't have harmony or a good life. Not only that man, as he is by nature, is selfish, he's self-centered, he's self-justifying, and he's controlled by desire. But they still think that he's capable of the right decision. And still more monstrous and ridiculous, they think that he's capable of carrying out his decisions after he's arrived at them, if he can. They still say man doesn't need God. Man can make his own world and he can make it wonderful. What's the answer? The answer is given once and forever in the epistle to the Romans in chapter 7. The will is present with me, but how to perform I know not. The evil that I would not, that I do, and the good that I would, I do not. And that's true of every man. And there is this perpetual struggle, and man can't do it. And yet they say he can. But you see, man is a mass of contradictions. From the very dawn of civilization and society, man has been admitting in practice that he cannot govern himself and that he cannot do what he knows to be right. Even in the most primitive tribes, you have your tribal customs, you have your taboos, you have your rules and regulations. Why? Well, because communal life is impossible apart from that. You let every man do what he likes and what he pleases, and you get nothing but immediate chaos. And so the most primitive civilizations, well, they've been civilizations, which means that they've realized the necessity for a certain amount of rule and law and custom taboos and things that are prohibited. Even your modern humanists who believe this kind of thing about men, even they have to recognize in practice that you've got to have some limits, that you've got to have some rules. They recognize that certain things are wrong. They don't believe in anarchy. And so they're granting the whole principle. You must have law. And indeed, this is obvious on in the international level. Why do you need a United Nations organization? Why is there this trouble in Cyprus at the present time? Why are people thinking in terms of some parliament of men or some world force? It's because men must be kept in order and cannot keep himself in order, either individually or as national groups. And why is all this so true? Well, you see, it's because, as the Bible puts it, that man is a fallen creature. Man is evil. If man were good, he wouldn't need law. 
Laws are not made for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. And the whole of mankind is unrighteous. Man is a fallen creature. Man's a creature who's gone astray. Man is lost. Man is a creature of lust and of desire. He doesn't live according to his brain, though he tries to persuade himself he does. Man's greatest need is wisdom. He needs knowledge. He needs control. He needs power. You see, this is all, this has all been gone through so often. Go back to ancient Greece. Before the birth of Jesus Christ. And you know what you had at one and the same time in Athens? You had the brilliant teaching of the philosophers. But the Apostle Paul discovered that the place was literally crowded out with temples. He says, I have observed that you're too superstitious, too religious. The place was filled with temples to various gods. Why? Well, because, you see, man realizes that there's something beyond his understanding. There is some power outside. So they built a temple to the unknown God. And thereby they admit that they need a God. They can't find him, so they have to postulate him. And they build a temple to the unknown God and proceed to worship him in ignorance. That is the final admission, that man is incapable of ordering his own life. He can't get on without law. He can't get on without God. And yet in his folly he thinks he can, and so he despises the law of God. Which brings me to my last point, which is this. This rejection of law at the present time is... Not only due to a misunderstanding of law and a misunderstanding of men, supremely it's based upon an utter ignorance of God. Because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. The prophet, you see, brings out the nature of God by describing him in those two different ways. The Lord of hosts and the Holy One of Israel. Oh, this is the tragedy of modern men. He thinks God is against him. He thinks God is a monster that's opposed to him, that's keeping him down and keeping him in subjection. That's the whole tragedy. It was the first sin, but still worse. Modern men who rejects the law of God hates above everything else the holiness of God. That's a terrible thing, but it's true. The modern man is ready to believe in a God of love, but he hates the idea of a holy God. The Holy One of Israel, he doesn't like holiness. He feels it's against him and his best interests. It's against what he wants to do. He hates the holiness of God. He treats with contempt and despises the word of the Holy One of Israel. When God says, because I'm God, thou shalt not, man hates him. And feels that it is against him. There is no more terrible indictment of the modern men. Than is hatred of the holiness of God. And in a like manner in his ignorance. He defies the power of God. Because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts. The God who commands the sun and the moon and the stars. The God who reigns over all, who made everything and who sustains everything. The Lord God Jehovah, Lord of hosts, infinite absolute in power. Modern man stands up and defies him and rejects his holy law and despises his most holy words. He doesn't realize he's in the hands of God. He doesn't realize that God is everywhere and that he can't be escaped. 
He doesn't realize that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He doesn't know that with all his cleverness he's got to die and meet God. Do what he will, he can't escape it, not avoid it. The Holy One of Israel, the Lord God of hosts. That's the explanation of the tragedy of modern men. What does he need? Well, it's plain and clear, isn't it? Modern man needs to know the truth about God. That God is. That God is holy, God is righteous, God is all-powerful. He needs to know God as his maker and creator. The one who's given him life and being in order that he might live to his glory and enjoy him forever. He needs to know that. He needs to know the truth about himself. He needs to know that he's not an animal. That he's not a bundle of sensations. That he's created in the image and likeness of God. That he's got a mind and an understanding. That he's got a soul and a spirit. That he's bigger than the world and life and all experience. That he's a living soul. Man needs to know the truth about himself. He needs to know therefore the truth about life and how to live it. He needs to know that his happiness is based upon one thing only. And that is the knowledge of God and the keeping of God's holy law. He needs to know that if he only does that, he will find the happiness, the liberty, and the love that he is longing for and looking for. Our Lord has put it all so perfectly. Love, as the apostle tells us, does no harm to his neighbor. Our Lord taught that thou thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. If only we all loved our neighbors as we love ourselves, the world would be perfect. We'd never take advantage of anybody. I'd never do harm to another to satisfy my lust. I'd have respect for the other. I'd have love for the other. I'd consider the other as I consider myself. And so would nations. There'd be perfect peace if only we loved our neighbor as ourselves. But what will ever enable me to love my neighbor as myself? Our Lord has given us the answer. There's only one way in which a man will ever come to love his neighbor as himself. It is this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That's the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And you'll never know yourself or love yourself properly until you know God and are living for him and his glory. Once you do that, you're right with your neighbor also. And you love him as yourself. But none of us does that. None of us can do that. And because we fail, we say it's this religion, this law of God that's upsetting everything. But my dear friend, it's the other way out. Get right with God. Begin to obey God. And all your problems are solved. Men can't do it. And this is the wonderful message of this Christian gospel. It is because men can't do it and has failed to do it and doesn't even want to do it. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sees us in our misery, in our slavery, in our lovelessness. 
and all our vileness, and in his compassion he sent his Son from heaven down into this world, and even to die upon a cross on Calvary's hill in order to set us free. So our Lord, on that occasion when he turned to those people and said, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, went on to say this, If the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Free from lust. Free from all the things that enchain you. Free in the freedom that God alone can give. Oh, let me put it to you then. In the words of the Apostle Paul, there he was trying to live a righteous life and failing. And at last in his utter agony and failure, he cries out saying, Oh, wretched men that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This contradiction that I am. And the answer comes, I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. I'm a free man. So he's able to say with the psalmist, Oh, how love I thy law. It is sweeter to me than the very honeycomb itself. I delight to do thy will, O God. There's only one way to find happiness. There's only one way to find liberty. There's only one way to find love. Listen, here's a man who's seen it, and this is how he prays. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. I sink in life's alarms, while by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my stand. My heart is weak and poor until it must have find. It has no spring of action. Sure, it varies with the wind. It cannot freely move till thou hast wrought its chain. Enslave it with thy matchless love, and deathless it shall reign. You see the paradox? But it's absolute truth. My will is not mine own. Till thou hast made it thine, if I would reach a monarch's throne, I must my crown resign. It only stands unbent amidst the clashing strife, when on thy bosom it has lent and found in thee its life. That's the way, the paradox. Make me a captive lord, and then I shall be free. He were the servants of sin, says Paul, but he have obeyed from the heart the form of sound doctrine that was delivered unto you, and now therefore being free from sin, ye are alive unto righteousness and unto God. Are you free, my friend? Are you happy? Do you know real love? If you don't offer this prayer, take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love. My Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Listen to another man at the end of his life. My gracious Lord, I own thy right to every service I can pay. And count it my supreme delight to hear thy dictates. And obey. 
Don't believe the lie of the devil. That to be a Christian is to be miserable, is to be a slave, and is to lack love and just live for chastity. My dear friend, this is liberty, this is life, this is joy, this is peace, this is happiness that hath no end. A joy that will never cease. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath set us free. If the Son shall set you free, he shall be free indeed. And he came from heaven into this world, blessed be his name, and went deliberately to that cross on Calvary's hill and died. Why? Well, that God might forgive us and blot out our sins and make us new men, give us a new nature, make us love his law and delight in it and live to his glory and find our supreme delight to hear his dictates. And obey. Oh, the tragedy of modern men. Rejecting the law of the Lord of hosts. And despising the word of the Holy One of Israel. My dear friend, if you're guilty of that, there's no hope for you. Recognize the enormity of it all. Recognize the tragic folly of it all. Repent, cry out unto him. Make me a captive Lord. And then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword. And I shall conquer or be. I sink in life's alarms. Well, by myself I stand. And haven't you? I know what it is to sink in life's alarms. Well, by myself I stand. Ask him. Imprison me within thine arms. And strong shall be thy, my hand. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. And with the freedom, he'll give you happiness and peace and joy and a love that knows no envy, a joy which cannot cease. Amen.